We'll hear argument now on number 89-17-15, Kathy Burns versus Rick Reed. Uh, Mr. Sutherland. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The case of Kathy Burns presents the, this Court with the opportunity to clarify and refine its holding in the landmark case of Embler. Just an opportunity. An opportunity, yes, Your Honor. <clears throat> For reasons of public policy and practicality, I will respectfully urge upon the Court that a bright-line test can be established to help resolve the conflicts in the circuits and to clarify some of the ambiguities that are inherent in trying to discern uh, conduct which is not essential to the initiation of filing formal criminal charges. The bright-line test which I would respectfully urge the Court to consider is as follows, that only that conduct which is the exclusive prerogative of the prosecutor, such as the filing of formal charges and presenting the state's case, should be protected by absolute immunity. Conduct which precedes the filing of formal charges should be protected by the substantial um, protection of qualified immunity. Excuse me, when, when you say the exclusive prerogative of the prosecutor, you mean under the particular state law in question, suppose the prosecutor was the only one who could have issued a an arrest warrant, would, would that come within your, in this particular state, would that uh, come within your test? Uh, Justice Scalia, I think that the functional approach and the review of the common law would suggest that uh, that would be um, taken into account in a primary way. If the prosecutor of that jurisdiction were the only one who could file um, a petition or a, a request for a, a warrant, then that particular conduct, the exclusive prerogative of that office, would des be deserving of the protection of absolute immunity. But in well, the well I thought you were talking about filing of charges. I thought one of your qualifications was that it had to be prior to, the, uh, in conjunction with or after the filing of charges. Is that what you said? In what I'm saying... Because if so, that would take care of Justice Scalia's uh, question, and, and I assume... Uh, Include absolute immunity for the filing of any, uh, for the application for any search warrant before formal charges are filed. Uh, Justice Kennedy, I believe that the, this Court's consideration in, in Malley versus Briggs suggested that the application of a search warrant uh, was typically not a judicial act. But if the particular state prescribed the exclusive power of the prosecutor, the and gave to that prosecutor the exclusive power to seek a search warrant, then I think that uh, under the functional test, which the Court has employed uh, in all types of immunity cases, that it would make no difference as to the other uh, parties who may be involved in seeking a search warrant, but if the prosecutor were the only one, he would be entitled to absolute immunity. Well, I, I understand that. So th that departs somewhat from what I, at least I thought I hear you say, said that it has to do with reference to the filing of charges, and charges are not filed uh, routinely with the application for a search warrant. That is correct, Your Honor. I misunderstood Justice Scalia. I thought he said an arrest warrant, but maybe I misunderstood. Yes. <clears throat> for reasons of public policy and practicality, the bright line test which I propose would eliminate uh, many of the problems which uh, are uh, addressed by the Seventh Circuit and the many other circuits. The, <clears throat> the
The public policy considerations are uh, essentially that any uh, anything which will ensure and enhance the integrity of the judicial process promotes the common good and is to be preferred over the unfettered power of the prosecutor's office. In the Seventh Circuit, <coughs> there was the uh, approach taken that giving advice would be protected by absolute immunity because the court deemed that to be quasi-judicial. That approach does not resolve the continuing problem which would exist even if this court were to adopt that. There would still be the very subjective debate, definitional debate, of what constitutes advice versus what constitutes uh, uh, investigation or directing investigation. The the factual assumptions are unsupportable uh, that would lead one to conclude that if absolute immunity were not extended to such conduct as giving advice, uh, that the prosecutor would be hesitant to give such advice and would be uh, flooded with a deluge of litigation, of civil rights litigation. The 14 years following Embler suggests the contrary is true. The majority of circuits have interpreted Embler in a rather restrictive way, allowing absolute immunity only for those essential prosecutorial functions, and has not expanded the application or the availability of absolute immunity to other functions such as giving advice. One could then argue reasonably that in those circuits, and the majority of them have been, I think, applying Embler in a restrictive fashion. One could argue then that you would see a deluge or at least an imbalance of activity against prosecutors in those jurisdictions, and that simply is not in evidence. There has no, been no complaint uh, and no um, dicta within these opinions which suggests that these circuits are handicapped or burdened with a number of prosecutional well, misconduct about, cases. Well, maybe that's because uh, the prosecutors don't give advice in those circuits. That is possible, Your Honor. Well, I mean, they're probably obeying the, they're probably avoiding a risk. The idea of giving advice, uh, Justice White, is certainly to be encouraged, and we're not suggesting that uh, any ruling uh, under Embler or uh, any ex- uh, clarification should impede that. But what we want to ensure is good advice and to allow prosecutorial Im- immunity to our uh, absolute immunity. You think qualified immunity is enough? Yes, I do, Your Honor. Uh, qualified immunity is a substantial protection. Under the holding of, uh, of Harlow, the objective test would require that the prosecutor or any other uh, advice giver violate a clearly established principle of law before he would be liable. So in practice, if the prosecutor asserts the the, uh, affirmative defense of good faith and it is shown that his conduct did uh, not violate any clearly established principle, the case is over as to him, and he is out of the uh, process of litigation. That substantial protection was reiterated in your concurring opinion in Embler. Yeah, but what, uh, what, uh, why should any, anyone, judge uh, or a prosecutor in his core functions, why should he have absolute immunity? I suppose it's to keep him out of litigation at all, isn't it? The, Your Honor, the, the 
public policy and functional uh, assessment or analysis of that office uh, has led this Court and uh, traditionally has resulted in the belief that certain core essential functions must be protected by absolute immunity. So because? Because they act as a judicial officer making critical decisions. Well, I know, but, that, but, but why should the judicial officer, uh, what's the purpose of, of giving him more than qualified immunity? It would impede his ability to make impartial and objective judgments. He might be hesitant to rule uh, on the merits and might be fearful of the outcome, uh, seeing the potential of liability. And it's the judicial immunity that was found uh, appropriate and was clarified in the case of Forrester. That is, if it's not an essential judicial function but an administrative function, then you do not need to protect that activity with absolute immunity, but only qualified immunity, which is, I... Well, a ju- perhaps a judge ought to know what clear- clearly established law is, uh, and he wouldn't be liable unless uh, he violated it. So why does he need absolute immunity? Uh, or why does the prosecutor? The Justice White, the, the prosecutor's office uh, as sovereign, as counsel for the sovereign, is perhaps the most powerful office, and his discretionary power... Uh, requires him to make judgments, often close calls. Well, how Qualified can it be a close call uh, in uh, in uh, identifying what you've just said isn't too hard a thing, uh, clearly established law? Oftentimes, uh, it is difficult to discern on the spot what clearly defined law is. But if it is a close call under the objective standard, uh, the prosecutor is protected. In other words, he's not uh, cautioned to withdraw from the edge of what that clearly defined standard is. It also keeps him out of litigation, I guess. Absolute immunity does. Well, absolute immunity would keep him out of litigation, but it would not promote the public uh, good and would not serve any uh, legitimate public policy interest. What we want and what is primarily uh, is to be uh, protected in the prosecutor's office is his function of discerning those meritorious prosecutorial cases. As counsel for the sovereign, he is really in a representative government acting on behalf of all the citizens. Why doesn't that apply when he moves uh, the magistrate for a search warrant before an arrest, before filing charges? An official appearance before the court. I mean, it seems to me that that's more like uh, an appearance with reference to an arrest warrant than it is simply giving advice. Justice Kennedy, I think that issue was addressed in, in Malley versus Briggs, and that if you apply the functional test, it should make no difference what hat the person is wearing, but what the function under scrutiny truly is. And if a police officer can come in and apply for a search warrant and uh, misleads the court or it is found to be an inappropriate act uh, exposing him to liability under qualified immunity, then it is inconsistent and impractical to then say to the prosecutor, but because of the hat you're wearing, we are going to give you absolute immunity, it would create in the public's mind an inconsistent outcome and would invite just... This fellow, uh, <clears throat> here's this person sitting behind the bench uh, issuing a search warrant who gets uh, absolute immunity. That is correct, uh, Justice White, and that says it should be because he is, he is charged with being an impartial magistrate determining whether or not a warrant should be issued. But the suit says he isn't. The suit might charge him with all sorts of things for which he would be uh, immune. 
In this country, uh, anybody can be sued for the cost of a filing fee. But the, the process of protecting that officer from uh, being involved in protracted litigation uh, would uh, permit the motion to dismiss, the motion for summary judgment, and Trial Rule 11 sanctions would caution any practitioner to be quite careful about his allegations. There are adequate protections, but to extend absolute immunity to this particular prosecutor, Mr. Reed, for the conduct under scrutiny would be to suggest that almost anything that a prosecutor does uh, prior to filing formal charges would be protected. Mr. Sutherland, why, why, why let's, let's explore that. Uh, I had thought that the only justification for carving out judges as an exception to the normal rule of just qualified immunity is that judges are more likely to be sued. Uh, there's nothing worse than a disappointed litigant. And, and that's the reason, although we, we have no more need to be impartial than the Attorney General or a lot of other public officers who, who are supposed to act in the public interest all the time, but we're more likely to be sued often. Now, why can't you say the same thing about the prosecutor in everything he does, not just in the uh, uh, things that's relate? Why does it have to be related to the, to the judicial process? The only, the only relevance of that is that that is what produces the likelihood of, of constant, constant litigation. In uh, Justice Scalia, in this particular case, all the conduct preceded any judicial involvement. The prosecutor gave permission to hypnotize Kathy Burns, contrary to the advice of the police officer, which suggested by his training that it was improper, and contrary to the prohibitions of the Fifth Amendment. This particular prosecutor then went down and viewed a video tape of the forensic hypnosis and by all accounts violated every professional and ethical protocol, including the post-hypnotic suggestion that she would not remember any of the activities under hypnosis and that she would cooperate fully with the police. That conduct was followed by a discussion on whether or not to make the source of this so-called interpretation of a confession uh, public. The following day, Mr. Reed uh, with Officer Scroggins presented to the court a dishonest statement of the basis for seeking a search warrant. All of that preceded the filing of any formal charges, all of that without any judicial... I understand hearing. that, and that's all terrible if it, you know, if it occurred uh, the, the, the way you say, but what also could have occurred is he could have, he could have filed a, uh, an indictment that was just a, just a pack of lies for which you would have had absolute immunity. It, it would have been just as harmful, just as unconstitutional, whatever else you want. That is correct, Your Honor. Now, why, why is the one different from the other? I, I agree, absolute immunity is a terrible thing, but why, why, why should we give it to them for the one rather than the other? Uh, in most competing interests where one right uh, could be, uh, say, trampled by a governmental objective, there must be a balancing. And in this particular case, uh, the... Uh, the balance would have resulted in a finding that if Mr. Reed had sought the authority of the court and had obtained an indictment, then from that point, that is the filing of the indictment, and from that point on, his conduct would be absolutely immune because we must tolerate those instances of egregious conduct in order to protect the judicial processes. We must tolerate cases such as this if they had been filed, if the conduct had occurred after the filing, but because the conduct occurred all prior to the filing, because the dishonesty to the court in, the search, uh, in seeking the search warrant occurred prior to the filing, because uh, 
Kathy Burns was detained for eight days before there was a formal filing of the charge. Uh, because in seeking the warrant for arrest, there was still no mention of the search warrant. All of this conduct is so reprehensible that to extend absolute immunity to this kind of conduct would be to create more confusion and more conflict in the circuits. There would be inevitably a, a difficult subjective process of trying to discern whether or not the conduct of the prosecutor is investigative or whether it is simply advisory as the Seventh Circuit held. It may be both, but you would be forced, or the, uh, the trial court would be forced to defer to a fact finder. In the proposed bright line test, which I have uh, recommended to the court, most of those problems would be eliminated. If the conduct was the exclusive and essential prerogative of the prosecutor's office, then that could be easily determined. But if the conduct uh, were advisory or investigative prior to the filing of formal charges, then you wouldn't have to distinguish, as the Seventh Circuit tried to do, whether or not there was an active participation or passive advising uh, activity. Um, it is important to, to realize that <clears throat> if the prosecutor is going to continue to give advice to police, whether it be uh, at the local level or at the federal level, that he must reserve some caution and some respect for the Constitution and the rights of the individual. If he is simply going to be allowed to shoot from the hip and give bad advice, then no public policy is well served. No common good is advanced. What is encouraged by the uh, allowance of qualified immunity is to encourage that prosecutor, or any legal advisor for that matter, to use caution, to take an informed position, to uh, reflect before he advises the police on their actions, uh, which may, in fact, uh, infringe upon a liberty interest. Because there's a, there's a third alternative, too, isn't there? And, and isn't that that uh, if the immunity is only qualified, any prosecutor who has the option is not going to give advice at all? Um, he's simply going to say to the police, you're on your own, or he's going to do whatever he can to encourage the police to have their own lawyers so that he is simply off the hook uh, for this possible source of liability entirely. Justice Souter, if that is a possibility, of course, and I suppose it might depend on each individual's uh, propensities to give advice and to involve themselves in well, the Well, if, if you had the choice uh, and, and you knew that by giving no advice uh, you had nothing to worry about, um, uh, you could come in after the judicial stage was reached and whatever might happen to the case, at least there would no, be no risk of liability on you. Uh, and the other alternative uh, was to give no advice, uh, it was to, to give advice and, and, uh, uh, and uh, assume the, the risk of such liability as might come in qualified immunity. Uh, you'd take the first alternative, wouldn't you? Uh, if I may answer this way, Justice Souter, applying the functional approach would not uh, require somebody to look at the particular hat of the person giving advice. So if a sergeant were to give advice, or a legal advisor who is an attorney or may not be an attorney would give advice, and that advice would lead to a violation of one's constitutional rights, then under, uh, and if the plaintiff met his burden of proof under 1983, that person would be held liable. That, that's right. But, but your rule would, in fact, encourage that the, uh, the uh, situation in which the advice would be coming from the sergeant rather than coming from a prosecutor whom one, one hopes might have some uh, detachment and perhaps a, a, a greater fund of legal knowledge. Well, if, if the public policy to be served is to protect the integrity of the judicial process, that is, the integrity of the 
uh, the discretionary power of the prosecutor to, to file charges or not, then other activities of the prosecutor, which perhaps might make him less objective and might draw him into being uh, a part of the investigative effort, that might cause him to jeopardize his impartiality and his objectivity. But absolute immunity would encourage just the opposite. Absolute immunity would encourage the giving of bad advice freely without fearing consequences. And what public policy in this matter should, I think, uh, uh, should predominate would be that the prosecutor would reflect and be cautious, and if he isn't truly uh, acting on the, uh, on the office as he's been entrusted with properly, he would give the proper advice, and even in the close call, he would be protected by the substantial uh, protection of qualified immunity. It is only when the conduct is so egregious that uh, it, it violates clearly established law is the prosecutor going to be found liable for this conduct that precedes the filing of formal charges. And that is consistent with uh, the court's holding in, in Malley. It's consistent with the, uh, the, the uh, Briscoe case, which said that a witness, a police officer, who gives false testimony after the filing of formal charges uh, is absolutely immune, because at that point, the state's immense power has now been brought to, brought to bear on an objective of obtaining a prosecution. And if, <clears throat> if, if that's the line of demarcation, then from that point on, the prosecutor and the police and the witnesses should enjoy absolute immunity. Um, I might point out that, um, that the assertions of the respondent in this matter uh, simply do not hold up under scrutiny. Uh, we cite in our brief the study, the empirical study uh, in the Cornell Law Review article, which suggests that less than 4% of the 1983 cases involve prosecutorial misconduct. And in my reading of that article suggests that the majority of them are disposed of without going to trial. And of the cases scrutinized in the Central District of California for 1975 and 76, only two cases, I believe, went to trial. Well, that's true. Of lo lots of cases are settled on the merit, settled by payment of money, aren't they, Mr. Sullivan? I mean, true of any case. Only a small percentage of cases filed are going to go to trial. That's true, Mr. Chief Justice, but this particular article actually analyzed the method by which these cases were disposed, and the vast majority of them, all but two, as I recall, were disposed of by motions to dismiss or summary judgment. So the prosecutor was not burdened by being involved in protracted litigation. And as I suggested, the 14-year uh, the opportunity, if you will, to allow the circuits to be legal laboratories have produced uh, a plausible argument that they are not burdened by this restrictive uh, application as instructed and as taught by Embler to allow the prosecutor only absolute immunity for those essential functions. Or else that the prosecutors are pulling their punches in those circuits. That is quite possible, Your Honor. But the uh, briefs of the respondent and the amici do not challenge our assertions. They merely restate the argument that they will be burdened or that they will be encumbered. There is no statistical information. There is no fact source which can demonstrate that that is uh, supportable. And it is our position, Your Honor, that what would be encouraged if the respondent's uh, arguments were persuasive would be even a more divisive problem in the circuits. They would still have to consider what is the distinction between advice and investigatory. And in the proposed bright line test, which I have respectfully urged this court to consider, most of those problems 
would be resolved at the threshold of the litigation on the basis of whether or not uh, there was a clearly established principle of law which the prosecutor and, uh, had violated. And if he had not violated a clearly established principle of law, then the case ends as to him. Mr. Southern, most of your argument has been in the nature of a kind of argument you make to a legislature about what kind of rule we ought to adopt and what would be a wise rule. Uh, haven't we in the past looked to the common law for some kind of guidance on what the scope of this uh, immunity is? And if so, what would we find there? The, uh, Your Honor, if I could answer that question very briefly. Um, the common law suggests that the prosecutor uh, enjoys uh, immunity, but not absolute immunity for everything he does. In the state of Indiana, for example, the prosecutor is defined as a law enforcement officer. And he, even under state tort law, which is derived from common law, he would be exposed to liability for false arrest. And as we've alleged in this particular case, and as, of the, and as the facts are demonstrated on the record, Mr. Reed was instrumental and crucial in the decision to arrest Kathy Burns uh, without a warrant based upon his opinion that there was probable cause. So the common law tradition suggests that there is perhaps a need to protect the essential function of the prosecutor, that is, the prosecutorial function, the initiation of filing formal charges and the presentation of the state's case. But everything in addition to that, outside of that, was regarded traditionally as more of a police function and not entitled to absolute immunity. Mr. Chief Justice, I would like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Sutherland. Uh, Mr. Speer, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case concerns a pure legal issue concerning and regarding legal advice given to police concerning hypnosis, legal advice given to police officers concerning probable cause to arrest, and asking questions of a police officer in court seeking a search warrant. The issue is, are these prosecutorial functions protected by absolute immunity from civil liability under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. Are both the, the functions here uh, functions that the state law uh, says are within the scope of the prosecutorial function? Yes, Your Honor, they are. In, in Indiana, we, it is by definition of common law and historical custom and practice that they are. But like Illinois, which is in the same circuit, the Indiana prosecuting attorney is almost a second cousin to the state's attorney in Illinois, where giving legal advice to police is, in fact, a statutory obligation. But giving legal advice to police and conducting search warrant hearings or also ag, um, asking questions in search warrant hearings is a traditional function of an Indiana prosecutor. Is it covered by statute? No, Justice, it is not covered by statute. The, the statutory duties of the Indiana prosecutor are confined to one or two simple statutes. Is there a case law on the question? Only to the extent, Your Honor, that, that the Pacman itself discusses Griffith v. Slinker, which is the touchstone common law case we rely on. And later on, we see Foster v. Piercy in Indiana in the 1970s dealing with a wide-ranging deal, uh, a wide-ranging variety of prosecutorial duties. But those particularized functions are not statutory. They are common law and historically based. As a practical matter, Indiana has 92 counties, and many of them are very small, so that uh, in terms of giving legal advice to the police, as a practical matter, if they do not get legal advice from the prosecuting attorney, they do not get legal advice at all. County attorneys and city attorneys, except in a very major urban area, 
would ordinarily not be giving legal advice on criminal cases to the local police. How about getting warrants in the, in the state? Is it um, customary that warrants are obtained by the prosecutor? As Almost always, the Justice. The, uh, there are two methods, um, on, for instance, in search warrants, which would be either prior to or after filing formal charges in Indiana. Um, one is to ask questions in open court and then obtain a warrant, usually drafted by a prosecutor but signed by a judge after amendment or on its face. The other question would be a preparation of an affidavit signed by the charging witness, usually an officer, in preparation of a warrant, which would then be signed by a judge or um, as amended or on its face if founding of probable cause. Under either of those circumstances, the prosecutor would be eminently involved in it, and it's, um, in fact, in terms of asking questions in open court in Indiana, only a lawyer can ask questions of a witness in open court so that the officer, if they did not go in alone, could not have another person ask those questions unless they were an attorney. As a practical matter, the only available attorney would be the prosecuting attorney or one of his or her deputies. Well, didn't the state trial judge testify in this hearing that the prosecutor had to be in uh, her court before a search warrant would be issued? Yes, Justice. This is a, a local custom and practice rather than state law, but absolutely that is correct. Mr. Spear, looking at your, your, your answer to Justice O'Connor prompted this thought in my mind. Looking only at the legal advice aspect of the case, I guess different communities can have different methods of providing the police department with legal advice. And supposing the police department in a city hired its own lawyer who was not a prosecutor, his fo- sole function, handle their pensions, handle their internal things, and also to give legal advice in the course of their duties. Would such a person be entitled to ad, uh, absolute immunity in your view? That, that is the cutting edge of the question of whether that immunity would apply in that situation, Justice. And I would believe that it would depend on whether or not it was an integral part of their duties under state law, whether that be state well, I'm assuming it would be, that the police have a regular procedure of going to some lawyer. Maybe they hire the lawyer just to give the police legal advice. But he never prosecutes. Under those circumstances, if it was the functional equivalent of what a prosecuting attorney does in a well, criminal case, yes. Otherwise, no. It's the functional equivalent of what some prosecutors do. Yes, Justice. But you say that, uh, that uh, if, if any, a non-prosecutor gives legal advice, he'd get the prosecutorial immunity? Only in the limited circumstance where it was an integral part of, part of the duties. It, it would not be a wide-ranging thing. A police officer could not bring a private attorney in and have them ask questions and, and hope for that immunity. But on the other hand, there is some question in that circumstance whether there's state action as well. I don't understand what principle you use to get there. I mean, you say giving legal, legal advice must have absolute immunity. It must, because the prosecutor does it. And then you say, well, therefore, anybody else that gives legal advice also has immunity. What, the question what is all this based on? It just, just seems sort of random. Whether or not it's an integral part of the judicial process, we would submit is, is, is the answer to that. Just giving, giving legal advice is, is an integral part of, a, of the judicial process? We would submit that it is. That, that, in fact, as early as possible in criminal investigation and prosecution, the police for public policy reasons, should have access to legal advice, and for two reasons. One is to protect the innocent and to protect people's constitutional rights, because hopefully an attorney, a prosecuting attorney, gives better legal advice than a squad sergeant. On the other hand, if the... It is also he give better legal advice if he has absolute immunity than if he has no immunity. Most lawyers don't need absolute immunity to give legal advice. Most lawyers, Justice, are not subject to the kind of, of litigation from 1983 that the prosecuting well, attorney would Some be. of them are. We've had cases involving suits against defense counsel. We've had suits a lot in the malpractice actions. There's a lot of litigation against lawyers. I would submit, Justice, that, that in the hurly-burly of the criminal justice system, that, that 
police officers, judges, and prosecuting attorneys draw far many more lawsuits than the average member of the bar. Mr. Spear, getting to the person involved, do you claim this right to everybody in the prosecutor's office? Only a prosecuting attorney or his deputy who are members of the bar, Justice. Only what? Only the prosecuting attorney or his deputies who are members of the bar. But all of those, in the, if the prosecutor's office has 250 people, they all have absolute immunity. If, if they're lawyers. Without more. For the facts in this case and for those key prosecutorial functions under Imbler, Justice, yes. But not just because he's a prosecutor. No, it, it relates to the function and not simply because he's a prosecuting attorney, well, Justice. Well, the function would be anybody in the prosecutor's office who is a lawyer. Yes, Justice. Well, where does the lawyer who was just hired yesterday get any policy-making theory? I would submit, Justice, that in this particular instance, it's not necessarily policy-making, but the choice of whether or not... Well, don't the cases say policy-making position? I would submit, Justice, that they deal in a criminal justice context simply with, with a judge and prosecutor context, as opposed to, for instance, the absolute immunity of the President of the United States, which is, which is a policy-making question. And if the opinion's limited to policy-making people, you lose? I would you suggest that far? not necessarily, Justice, because I'm not I sure. I not. Justice, I would think not, simply because in a courtroom, whether you're the prosecutor or a deputy prosecutor, you are the state of Indiana when you bring an action. In this particular case, the District Court and the Court of Appeals found that Mr. Reed engaged in a prosecutorial function by giving legal advice and asking questions in court of a police officer. And in key here, the prosecutor did not manage or participate in police investigative activities. This court in Imbler v. Pacman held that a prosecuting attorney has absolute immunity in performing duties which are an integral part of the judicial process in order to protect the prosecutor from harassment and intimidation. Historically, Imbler cites Griffith v. Slinkard, an 1896 Indiana case, dealing with granting legal advice to grand juries, and indeed granting legal, giving legal advice to grand juries, allegedly adding a name to an indictment, allegedly suborning perjury of witnesses in front of a grand jury. Mr. Spear, the, the, the phrase, you didn't use quite the phrase that we use in Imbler. The phrase we used in Imbler as, as delineating the boundaries of our holding was, was that uh, the respondent's activities were intimately associated with the judicial phase of the criminal process. Yes, Justice. Would you think that's an accurate description of what you're urging us to accept, intimately associated with the judicial phase of the criminal process? Yes, Justice, because we disagree strongly with Petitioner that there is a bright line test which this Court can apply overall to determine where Imbler applies. We would submit that the Imbler teaching is that you must apply it on a case-by-case -case basis, that there will be tough questions for the courts to make, and that there is no bright line one way or another. And we are submitting not that this Court extend Imbler, but apply it to the facts in this case. And there are three specific situations, giving legal advice on hypnosis, giving legal advice concerning probable cause, and asking questions in open court on a search warrant hearing. And we ask this Court to do no more than apply Imbler to those facts and not to create, to extend Imbler, but merely to apply it herein. We think Imbler answers the questions that this case brought up. Uh, Imbler saved the question of whether uh, in giving advice uh, was subject to a absolute immunity. 
Certainly, Justice, it did not decide the specific issues in this case, but it, it gave us the teachings to apply to a fact situation and reach a result, which we believe that the circuits and the district courts have over the years. Now, there is admittedly a split in the, circuit on le- in the circuits on legal advice. The 7th, 8th, and 11th find absolute immunity. The 10th definitively does not. But uh, just giving legal advice is perhaps different from actually appearing in court uh, to uh, get a search warrant. We would suggest that it is a similar situation because this prosecuting attorney did not appear in court as a witness, Justice. He appeared to ask questions. Sure, sure. Uh, this is a function that he would be doing in a trial situation. It would also be an instinct. But it's different from just giving advice. Yes, Justice, it certainly is. They're and separate similar, I suppose there might be differences between what, what the advice uh, related to. Like in this case, advice about hypnosis is maybe different from giving advice about whether uh, there is probable cause to search to. Uh, Get a search warrant. We believe those two are almost identical questions, whereas asking questions in court is a separate question, Justice. That would be our submission. And how is it that the giving of the advice is intimately associated with the judicial function? We would submit, Justice, that if the the prosecuting attorney, by analogy, does exactly the same thing with regard to a grand jury, that, that he or she does in, in this case. They give legal advice to grand juries. In Indiana, they call the grand jury, give legal advice to grand jury, ask questions of witnesses before grand juries. And we believe that is a very direct analogy to what this prosecuting attorney, prosecuting attorney did, which is give legal advice to the police, who, and furthermore, then proceeded to uh, ask questions in open court before a judge. And we think the analogy is very direct because this prosecutor did not... Um, engage in what we think is investigative conduct. Mr. Spear, what, what happens down the line if, if the person who gives the advice has absolute immunity and the person who receives it continues to have qualified immunity, I suppose, right? Yes, Justice. So that if you have somebody who has absolute immunity giving advice to a policeman, as long as the policeman seeks advice from somebody who can't possibly be held liable for it, the policeman can't be held liable, and also the person who gave the, the advice can't at all be held liable. I'm not sure the policeman can't be held liable, Justice. Um, in Malley versus Briggs, for instance, the magistrate was clearly absolutely immune who issued the warrant, and yet the officer who testified and asked for the warrant was found to be not immune. Under those circumstances, there is a, the qualified immunity would apply, but in a particular fact situation, it may not protect the officer. Well, I think it would be a pretty hard fact situation where you get advice from a lawyer. You're not yourself a lawyer. Um, you know, I'm, that, that's, that's a harsh doctrine, it seems to me. The, the doctrine of absolute judicial immunity, prosecutorial immunity justice, is not to protect individuals. It's to protect the, the system. It, it is inconceivable there would be such a doctrine if, if there weren't public policy grounds to protect the system as a whole as opposed to individuals. And I think that makes the difference. But also the doctrine grew out of the common law. And I'm, I'm curious, to what extent can you point, call our attention to common law authority for the proposition that the prosecutor is giving legal advice is absolutely immune? would suggest that, that at least in Griffith versus Slinkard, which is the Indiana case, it's not a legal advice case. Uh, would suggest that giving legal advice to grand jury is a legal advice case, Justice. Isn't that the one where he added the name to the... Yes, he did, but he also asked what, allegedly suborned perjury in front of the grand jury and, and, allegedly, and gave it legal advice to the grand jury as well. Well, have you got any cases involving giving legal advice to police officers? Um, in terms of... 
Okay. Where in, at the common law it was found that that was absolutely immune. No, Justice. Mr. Spear, do you think that um, the prosecutor here would have been able to obtain summary judgment under qualified immunity? We believe so, Justice. Or is that open to some question? We obviously would disagree with the petitioner about that, but we believe he would. We think that the abstract proposition of whether or not you can hypnotize someone is something which you could obtain qualified immunity on. Giving legal advice on probable cause would also be fit that category, and that we also believe that objectively, since in any, there isn't any in a case that says that, that hypnosis can provide probable cause, although not used as evidence, that each of those three situations would have produced summary judgment under qualified How about concealing uh, the basis for the background of the warrant from the judge? We would submit, Justice, that, that the record shows that he asked the officer questions. He asked him if there was anything else he wanted to say, to which he responded no. And under Gentry versus State in Indiana, it is irrelevant whether it was under hypnosis or not, because for probable cause purposes, the confession properly given hypnosis would have produced probable cause in either event, whether it was under hypnosis or not. And there was no clear-cut law that said you couldn't do it. Subsequent case law said you could. At common law, we would submit, however, that A cannot sue B's lawyer for legal advice, even bad legal advice, that B's lawyer gives B. We would submit the same situation is true here. This is not a prosecutorial case. Yeah, but that's not an immunity problem. argument. That's just there was no cause of action. Isn't that right? Yes, Justice. Yeah. But there is a common law principle involved here. It is related, but not on all fours. In this case, Reed did not participate in the interrogation. He did not make an arrest. We would submit prosecutors should be encouraged to give police legal advice in the building and screening of cases as early as possible. In Indiana, it is historical custom and practice for prosecutors to appear at search warrant hearings. And again, only an attorney can ask questions in an Indiana court. This prosecutor was neither an affiant nor a witness in that hearing. We believe asking questions in court is intimately associated with the judicial phase of the criminal proceedings and is entitled to absolute immunity. The prosecutorial analogy, uh, analysis approach is a determination of whether the prosecutor activities are in the judicial phase of the criminal process, including initiating the process. If so, prosecutors are absolutely immune from civil liability. When performing its historical function in a criminal case, prosecutors should have the same immunity as judges. Public policy requires the criminal justice system be allowed to protect the innocent and pursue the guilty. Here we would ask the court to apply in versus Pacman. A prosecutor should be afforded absolute civil immunity any time he or she functions as a prosecuting attorney, either in court or giving legal advice. We would urge the Seventh Circuit to be affirmed. Thank you, Mr. Spear. Uh, Mr. Lazowitz? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. It may have pleased the Court. In our view, the Court's decisions, and Imbler against Pacman in particular, suggest that absolute immunity shields, those, shields the performance of those prosecutorial functions that directly affect the fairness and integrity of the judicial, judicial process. Those are the functions that, excuse me, that's the concern that's the driving force behind the Court's recognition of absolute immunity in this area of the law. Here, the challenge prosecutorial activities giving advice to the police officers about the conduct of their investigation, and later participating in a judicial proceeding to obtain a search warrant, are integral to prosecutorial functions that do directly implicate ju the judicial process. 
Those well-recognized functions are, one, screening cases that lead to the formal charging decision, and secondly, the prosecutor's duty to make sure that the criminal justice process is always fair. Exposing such conduct to the threat and intimidation of civil litigation would inevitably impair the judicial process. And there are, there are other alternatives, remedies, short of a civil, civil damages uh, action, excuse me, to take care of prosecutors' misconduct. In these circumstances, we submit the prosecutor is entitled to absolute immunity. To well, the uh, prosecutor uh, uh, goes with the police to execute a, a search warrant uh, uh, because he thinks, uh, and the police think maybe there's some question about how far they can go uh, with the search. Uh, would, 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 if he goes with him and gives him some advice and he's dead wrong, uh, is, is it absolute immunity? Or? In that situation, Justice White, um, rare as it may be, at least in the federal practice, if, it doesn't matter where the prosecutor is, whether he's on the phone in his office or at the scene, although it's a bad practice for the prosecutor to be on the scene because he could become a witness, which is something you don't want. But to contrast that situation with it, So your answer is he would be absolutely yes, immune. Yes, but if he's on... Because he's only given, given advice. Right, but if he's on the search scene, and there are cases that we cited in our brief, where the prosecutor is participating in the search, he's with the, the investigators rummaging through the house to look for the evidence, then we submit that's a much di more difficult case to say that he's entitled to absolute immunity because he is functioning not so much as a, he's not functioning as a prosecutor. Does it matter if he's a prosecutor? Suppose it's somebody else who, who gives advice. You, you have somebody called police counsel, and uh, he doesn't prosecute cases, but he gives advice to all the police. We, the police our submission here is not that anyone who gives legal advice. Well, why not? Because that person. You say it's an integral part of the, uh, it's, of, it's, the integrity of the judicial process. The person, the legal advice giver in your hypothetical, who's not a prosecutor, isn't functioning in the system the way a prosecutor does. That's not his job. He's not thinking in terms of, well, if I give him the right advice, am I going to be able to make a case out of this? Is this going to lead to evidentiary problems? Is this the kind of case that we want to bring? And that's the distinction between the prosecutor and, for example, if, uh, at least in the federal system, all the investigative agencies well, the have... the police are always trying to make cases, uh, and the... So uh, here's one police department that hires their own lawyer to give them advice about search warrants. And here's another police department that relies on the prosecutor. You think there's a major difference between those two systems? I wouldn't say it's a major difference, Justice White, but in this oh, case... Enough, enough to... Yes, we would, we would pause before we would want the court to clothe absolute immunity to that person as opposed to a prosecutor. And, there is, and the distinction is, and it's what Imbler against Patman suggests, it's what this court even recognized in Butts and Economu, it's got to be not just the person's hat or whether he has a law degree. It's what his role is in the overall process. And in, this, in the case before the court, the, the reason why giving legal advice is, so to speak, intimately connected with the judicial process in the words of Imbler is that when the prosecutor gives that advice, he's giving it in, giving it in the context of making a case, presenting the charging decision. He is the one that has to make the charging decision which all agree must be protected from absolute, from suit by absolute immunity. You would give him greater immunity than, uh, than the cop on the beat who obeys his advice. Yes, the unfortunate, or as was pointed out before, one apparent anomaly is that the police officer goes to the prosecutor and says, one hypothetical would be, can I beat this person up to get a confession? And the stupid prosecutor, the incompetent prosecutor says, I think that's constitutional. 
There's no doubt that in our submission, the prosecutor... competent prosecutor who knows it's unconstitutional says, yes, that's constitutional, go beat him uh, up, right? I mean, that's what you're arguing for. Yes, it doesn't. Okay. Now, the, in our submission, the prosecutor is, is scot-free. The policeman can only claim qualified immunity. And in those circumstances, I submit, he would probably have a tough time claiming qualified immunity because of his state of mind isn't relevant. It's whether a reasonable police officer would know that that he could engage in this conduct, and I submit he would have a tough time making that claim. Mr. Lazarus, can I ask you the same question I've asked the other lawyers? To what extent are you aware of common law precedent for the position you take? Justice Stevens, in our brief, we made three points on, on this particular question. One, in Anderson against Creighton, the court made clear that the common law analog isn't the end of the case. Second, at common law in the 18th, 19th, and 17th centuries, this particular function wasn't entrenched in the public prosecutor's office. It's a modern development. And third... It cuts against you, of course. It does to a certain extent. But to the extent that we look for a common law analog, this goes back to my point before, in the context of giving legal advice, it's he's thinking about the charging decision. It could be considered a form of malicious prosecution, which is really what this case is, at least from plaintiff's standpoint, is all about. And, of course, as Imbler recognized... A prosecutor was absolutely immune to common law for that. And finally, this is not in our brief, but it was mentioned before. Given the privity requirements at common law, this, wouldn't, this suit wouldn't arise because a third party couldn't sue the lawyer for giving illegal advice. And so the reason why there may not be any cases showing absolute immunity for this particular set of circumstances, there was no cause of action at common law. And so we think that for those reasons, the fact that we can't give you a case well, of course, I suppose it's still somewhat unsettled as to the nature of the cause of action here, too. I don't This is, is a little bit... It is. Unusual. It's at least um, on the... So you, one could argue alternative, not argue for immunity, but just argue as an analogy of the common law that, well, the lawyer isn't responsible in this situation. Well, the common law, of course, today, the, the privity rules have changed, and there are suits where people sue lawyers. And in terms of this particular suit, it is strange in terms of the legal advice, at least with the hypnosis, that it was not um, decided on qualified immunity grounds. But even, but of course, respondent didn't make that argument to the court at the petition stage, and the case comes before you presenting the, the issue that has bothered the lower courts of whether legal advice is, such, is entitled so to absolute we, immunity. Well, rule we get from what you say is that if a pe- policeman wants to violate somebody's rights, the rule is be sure and get a prosecutor to advise you. Well, we, yes, in some respects... Is that what the rule is? That's, that's one of the offshoots of our submission, that the reason why we believe that absolute immunity is necessary is to keep the prosecutors in the wheel, in the decision-making, to have them available so they can yes, give... Yes, but advice. you don't really suggest that no prosecutor would ever give legal advice if he didn't have absolute immunity. No, he's no. perfectly confident of his position. He's going to give the advice. It's only on these fringe areas. Can I hypnotize some woman who's got 14 personalities? Do I, can I give that kind of legal advice is what we're talking about? But when you're in settled areas of the law where he knows what he's talking about, he doesn't need absolute immunity. In looking at individual cases, there's no doubt that you, don't, you wouldn't think that you need this absolute protection. But the point of the doctrine, and this Court has recognized this in Imbler and other cases, is you have to look at the broader category of cases. You just don't want... Yes, you are going to have the incompetent, lousy prosecutors getting off, but at the expense of having otherwise honest, hardworking, correct prosecutors not being subject, subject to the harassment of suit. And we submit that is, that's the calculus. In any given case, 
it's outrageous what happens, uh, what might happen to a particular plaintiff. But you can't throw out the baby with, with the bathwater. And we submit that. Yes, but the thing you're avoiding is frivolous suits. You're not necessarily, you don't have to have this rule to be sure that competent prosecutors will give sound advice. You're talking, there is a danger that that competent prosecutor will be sued, and you want to keep as much of that frivolous litigation out of the court system. But I don't think the goal you're seeking is be sure there's some prosecutors out there who are willing to answer police officers' questions. Now, I can't stand before the court and say that whichever way this case comes out, that federal prosecutors are no longer going to answer the phone and give advice. Uh, they're duty-bound by department regulation and, and by ethical rules to give advice. But people are people, and the, the, the concern is that subjecting prosecutors to the harassment of this litigation in the broad category of cases will undermine the system itself. Has it happened up to now? I mean, how many suits are there against federal prosecutors for giving advice? There aren't reported cases. There may be several dozen, if that many. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lazowitz. Mr. Sutherland, do you have rebuttal? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, I do. <clears throat> In response to uh, Justice O'Connor's question, um, although this Court may not uh, necessarily reach the question of qualified immunity, when asked by the trial judge uh, to rule on a, a, direct, or a, a motion to dismiss and a motion for summary judgment, in each of those instances, uh, the trial judge found that Mr. Reed was not entitled to qualified immunity. But it was at the close of plaintiff's case on a motion for a directed verdict that the court chose to review the Henderson versus Lopez case of the Seventh Circuit, which indirectly talked about advice and simply found, not on the basis of qualified immunity, but simply found on the basis of the Henderson case that if advice was inv uh, giving advice was involved, then the prosecutor was absolutely immune without getting to the specific activities. And what is created is a uh, is confusion. And in response to Justice Scalia's question, <clears throat> you have the inevitable problem that if you have a, a police officer interrogating an individual at the police station and in the process shredding the Constitution to tiny bits with the prosecutor standing there advising him of the questions to ask, then the police officer is entitled only to qualified immunity based upon the hypothetical and the prosecutor gets absolute immunity. But what a couple circuits have said, that is so inconsistent that the police officer must be entitled to raise the affirmative defense of good faith because what he has done is sought the best advice possible and in doing so he has drawn himself into the shadow of, of the absolute immunity protection. We, we have said that qualified immunity is an objective standard insofar as are involved cases in which the plaintiff tries to show that uh, uh, the, that the defendant knew it was wrong. And, and we said it didn't matter whether he knew it was wrong. If the average person wouldn't have known it was wrong, uh, the qualified immunity defense applies. But do you know of any cases where we have, re where we have or other federal courts have rejected a good faith defense by someone who sought legal advice and although somebody else might have known otherwise, he, on the basis of legal advice, thought what he was doing was right? But I don't know any. Um, I believe that I, I can't right now cite you to one, Justice Scalia, but I believe I have ran across at least two cases in, in preparing where the courts have said it would be an inconsistent outcome to hold the prosecutor uh, absolutely immune and to find that the police officer was not entitled to any immunity, although he might otherwise be, uh, because he sought the advice. And the 
the dilemma that would that all the courts would face if the arguments were adopted of the Solicitor General and the respondent would be that the trial courts would still be faced with the dilemma of discerning the difference between investigative activities and giving advice. There is no simple advice. That occurs in the classroom. The police officer sought advice expecting to get it. The prosecutor gave it expecting that it would be followed. And in this particular instance, on numerous occasions at critical junctures of the investigation, the advice was clearly intended to direct the course of the investigation was clearly intended to violate Mrs. Burns' rights by first hypnotizing her, by then by detaining her on the opinion, on his opinion, that it was without, whether it was based on probable cause, but without a warrant. Had he gone to the court and had he presented the information, as is required by the Fourth Amendment, to the court in an open and candid fashion, there would not be a lawsuit. And what he has tried to do is to say that because this is in the nature of a quasi-judicial function, or is intimately associated with the judicial process, that he's entitled to absolute immunity. I respectfully submit that that is not the case. Thank you, Your Honor. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.